month, a bunch of us local pastors meet together at, usually at, at my church. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't go. No, I'm just kidding. We, we rotate sometimes, but uh, it's been great getting to know Phil. You guys have, have a pastor who uh, strikes me as, um, uh, not to sound cliche, but you know, passionate for the Lord uh, in a mature way that I think um, many other pastors take a lot longer to get to. Uh, that point. I've, I've appreciated his friendship, his feedback. I run things by him. I've recognized wisdom in him. Uh, you're blessed to have Phil and my congregation is blessed to have him today uh, preaching there. Um, would, you, would you pray with me and ask that the Lord would speak to us today? Father, we are uh, grateful that, um, that we have your word and we want to honor it this morning. You exalt your name and your word above all things, and we want to exalt your name and your word this morning by not just being hearers of it, but being doers of it. So we need you to help our minds so that we can understand it. We need you to help our hearts so that we can ingest it and live it. And we ask you to do that for us by your grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to be looking at a book. I'm going to give you a, 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 uh, an overview of a book that some people wonder why it's even in the Bible. You know, uh, you have your, your pessimists and your optimists, and your optimists are the glass is always, the half, the half full glass is always half full, and the pessimist is going to focus on the fact that it's half empty. Well, the author of the book of Ecclesiastes wants to tell you the whole thing is empty. You're imagining the portion of water that's even in there. It's so negative. It's so pessimistic. Why is it in the Bible? It's peculiar and it's strange. Um, and it doesn't at first glance look like it belongs in the Bible. And so to try to explain this and to kind of set up our reading of Ecclesiastes, I thought of a song that's very fitting. Some of you may have this song, uh, you may know this song, you may jam to it in your car or sing it in your shower. Those of you that are parents probably definitely have it on your playlist. And it's a pretty profound song, especially when you read the lyrics, and it's called, Everything is Awesome. It's the theme song from the Lego movie. Let me read you some of the lyrics. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of a team. Everything is awesome when you're living our dream. Blue skies, bouncy springs. We just named two awesome things. A Nobel Prize, a piece of string. You know what's awesome? Everything. Dogs with fleas, allergies, a book of Greek antiquities, brand new pants, a very old vest. Awesome items are the best. Trees, frogs, clogs, they're awesome. Rocks, clocks, and socks, they're awesome. Figs and jigs and twigs, that's awesome. Everything you see or think or say is awesome. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of a team. Everything is awesome when you're living our dream. That song is funny and it's funny because we know what it's really saying there's what the song is saying 
And there's what the song is really saying. When I have my kids read a book, I ask them to give me a report because the kids will just tell you, I read the book, you got to quiz them, all right? You start asking questions, what's the book about? Give me the plot, what's the book about? Well, here's the character, and here's a couple other characters, and here's the problem that they got into, and then here's how they got out of the problem, and here's how the story ends. Okay, now tell me what the story is about. What are you talking about, Dad? I just told you what the story is about. Well, you gave me the plot. Good job. What's the subplot? Right? You told me what the book is about. Now I want to know what the book is about. What is this song saying? Everything is awesome. Well, it's saying this is awesome, that's awesome, your shirt's awesome, your scarf is awesome, awesome, awesome hair, awesome chairs, awesome plant, awesome. But what it's really saying is everything's not awesome. The people singing this song are fools to think that everything is awesome. Look at how much joy they take in the mundane things like trees and flogs and clogs, rocks and socks. Those things are awesome. This song is developed by the government for these workers, right? Told you, Lego movie. It's deep. It's propaganda, is it not? Take, take joy in the mundane, day-to-day things that you have in front of you. Getting dressed with your old vests or shoes, those are awesome. Brand new ones, who cares? That's awesome too. You like colors, you, you don't like colors, that's cool too. Everything is awesome as long as you live our dream. The dream being that everything is awesome. And at the, towards the end of the movie, they wake up. Wait a minute, everything isn't awesome? The author of Ecclesiastes doesn't quite take the sarcastic route, and he goes straight for the jugular and says everything is meaningless. Everything. I want to invite you to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you have a, one of the black Bibles provided for you, it's on page 553. But if you want to take the cheating way out, you can find it. Just crack your, open, crack your Bible open in the middle. You'll probably be in Psalms. Go over two books, Proverbs and then Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, a book written by the preacher, it says in verse 1. And many people identify the author of this book as Solomon. Some people say it's not Solomon. I think there's every reason to believe that it is Solomon. And I don't think... The arguments that it's not Solomon are sound. So I think we should roll with the idea that the son of David, the king of Jerusalem, is indeed Solomon himself. He was a collector of Proverbs, and then he writes the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, in a sense, to completely strip you down, to leave you with nothing left. His mantra is that everything is vanity, that everything is meaningless. You see that in verse 2. It says, the words of the preacher, verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So everything is vain. The word behind vanity is vapor or smoke. Everything's smoke. Everything's vapor. You walk outside on a cold morning and you see your breath, you just see it for a split second and then it's gone. It's over. How much meaning do you invest in that split second that you looked at that breath? You can't, even, you can't even look at it very long. It's just gone. It's meaningless. It's empty. It's vain. Not the kind of vanity like when you look in the mirror and think you're hot stuff. 
That's, the, that's how we use the word vanity. But the second definition of vanity is empty, meaningless, futile, helpless, useless, waste of time, goes nowhere, meaningless. All is vanity. All of what? Everything. Everything is vanity. So we, may th- we might think, you know, not everything is vanity. That's, that's a bit of an exaggeration. He wants you to ask that question because now what he does is he goes systematically and knocks off everything that you would put in the place of what has meaning in my life. Every objection that you can think of to say, well, well this, has, this brings meaning to me, he kills it. Until you're completely robbed and stripped down to a bare realization, agreeing with him that everything is meaningless. He tries wisdom first. I mean, it's Solomon after all, right? Solomon was wise. He was wiser than everyone else. God gave him this gift of wisdom. But it was a gift and a curse. The curse part being he pursued wisdom, thinking meaning would be found in wisdom. It's what he asked, the, asked God for. He thinks meaning can be found there, and he searches after it in wisdom, and he comes up short. Look at verse 12 in chapter 1. Verses 12 to 15. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. He tries wisdom, he searches after wisdom, and what he finds is that everything under the sun is all vanity. It's like chasing after wind. You can't catch wind. If you met somebody and they told you their hobby is to run around with their bare hands trying to catch wind, you'd be wondering if they needed medication or counseling or something, a combination of the two. You can't catch wind. If somebody says, I caught wind, it's right here in my pocket. They're a liar or they're crazy. This is what life is like, striving after wind that you can't catch, trying to contain wind in a box, and it doesn't happen. It can't happen. It's like trying to make things straight that are crooked, and the crooked things cannot be made straight. He's not trying to tell you, hey, life, you know, it's, it's straight when you really think about it. He's saying life has a lot of crooked parts to it, and you know what? You can't make the crooked parts straight. You can't. Your life will have crooked parts to it. Life is messed up. It's messy. And I'm here to tell you, the preacher says, I tried to make the crooked thing straight, and you can't. If anybody could, I could. I had all the resources. I can't do it. So then he tries something else. Forget it. If I can't find it in wisdom, what if I just try pleasure, hedonism, right? Let me just go after what pleases me. Whatever pleases me, I'm going to do it. I have the money to do it. I have the resources to do it. I have the manpower to do it. And so he chases pleasure. In chapter 2, in the first 11 verses, you see there that he's chasing after wisdom. He's chasing after, he has vineyards, he has the best fruit trees, he has the greatest gardens, he has all kinds of slaves, male slaves, female slaves, he has herds, he has flocks. And verse 7, he gathered to himself, verse 8, of silver and gold, treasure of kings and provinces. He had singers to sing to him, both men and women. He had all the delight that he could ask for or reach for. There was nothing beyond his reach. He was able to engage in any pleasure that his mind could imagine. And it was meaningless. 
In fact, the more wisdom he achieved, the more depressed he got, and the more pleasure he chased, the deeper his longing for pleasure. It just makes the void bigger when you keep trying to cram things in it that don't belong. So life is meaningless. Chasing wisdom is meaningless. Gaining wisdom. Chasing pleasure is meaningless. So he says, let me try work. You know, at least work is productive, right? You're doing something. Pleasure is kind of selfish. Wisdom is kind of, you know, ethereal. Let me do something. Actual hands and feet and work, and it produces things. And so he got to work. Well, he put his slaves to work, at least. And then in chapter 2, 18 to 16, he basically says, I, I built this, and I built that, and I, I worked, and I toiled, and it was all for nothing. It is all meaningless. So then he tries riches. What about just being the richest, having the most? Not necessarily pleasure in and of itself, but wealth itself, the love of money. In chapter 5, look at verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. He would know. Nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? What do you do with all that stuff besides just look at it? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but full but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Let me break that down in Lucas' version. The guy in the high-rise corner office is thinking about his cousin who's a blue-collar worker. He changes oil in a cold garage every morning, and he envies him because he has so much less to worry about than he does in his tight suit up in the high-rise. The more you get, the more worry you get. The bigger your paycheck, the bigger your anxiety. More money, less sleep. He's saying, he's saying trust me, I've been, I've been to the top. And I created new tops. And each tier leaves you more burdened than the previous. The void gets bigger. The burden gets worse. Because pleasure is meaningless. Work is meaningless. Riches are meaningless. And you don't have to be rich to be a lover of money. Do you want to be rich? Do you want a little more? Do you feel like a little bit more would make you just a little bit more comfortable? A little bit more would just give you that edge to just worry a little bit less? He's saying you're wrong. A little bit more will make you worry more. Because riches are meaningless. Congregation, this next one blows me away. Because as I read through this book, I was reading through it uh, most recently when I was studying through this, pa- this book, I thought to myself, it's not wisdom and it's not work and it's not riches, it's, it's goodness, it's righteousness, right? And he's saying, righteousness is meaningless. What? I thought, you just finished writing all these proverbs, Solomon, about righteousness. This is righteousness, that's wicked, don't be wicked, be righteous. And then you turn the page to his, his next book, his follow-up work, and he's saying righteousness is meaningless. Look at chapter 8, verse 14. Chapter 8, 14. 
he puts this stark contrast into verse. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said, that is also vanity. What's he saying? He's saying, I see righteous people. This is chapter 8, verse 14. I see righteous people, and you know what happens to them? What you would think should happen to wicked people. Then I see wicked people, and you know what happens to a lot of those guys? What you would think should happen to the righteous people. When you have churches and Sunday school classes and we're teaching our kids or parents that are teaching their kids and we just want to avoid the problem of evil, the Bible doesn't avoid it. It's right there. Why do the wicked people get what righteous people should get? And why do righteous people seem to get what wicked people should get? And we kind of know this instinctively, don't we? When somebody gets into a bad car accident, you don't go to yourself, huh, I guess they weren't true worshipers then. Huh, saw him singing on Sunday, but now he's in a bad car wreck. I guess he wasn't really singing then. Well, you know, you know the lot doesn't fall that way. That none of us in here are immune to cancer or bad car wrecks. I don't want to ask a show of hands as to who doesn't have insurance. Well, I thought you were a Christian. Why do you have insurance? I thought God was your insurer. We don't do that. So we know, we know what he's saying instinctively already. We know this happens. The more you worship, the less pain you get in life. That's not true. We wonder why prosperity gospel churches are so filled with people. I think it's because they have such a huge influx of people. We don't notice all the people dying. Completely walking away from Christianity because they were sold a bill of goods and it doesn't work. The pastor gets the jet. They can't pay off their car. But it doesn't matter because they're coming in in droves buying this nonsense. But it's not true. It's not true. He's saying, I pursued righteousness. And I saw and I looked and I saw righteous people get what they don't deserve. And I saw wicked people get what they don't deserve. It doesn't line up. His conclusion is that righteousness is meaningless. He raises the ante early on. I'm going to ask you to flip back to chapter 3. We'll be doing some flipping around, but we'll stay in the same book, I promise. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he says, you know what? He says, we're, we're no better than animals. We're no better than beasts. Look at verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. God wants you to recognize that, he's saying. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. They all go to the same place. It's not like Dogs are born, they're cute little puppies, and then they grow, and then they're strapping young dogs, you know, they're running around, they catch frisbees, and they chase ducks or whatever they do, and then suddenly they're limping, they can't get up on the couch anymore, they can't go up and down the stairs anymore, and then they're kind of blind, and you kind of see the eyes glazed over, kind of greenish hue, and you're maybe glaucoma or something, and then the, the vet bills are just piling too high, and you're like, eh, put them down. And it's a sad day, but it's worse when you realize, that's you! 
One day you'll not be able to get up on the couch. One day you won't be able to go up and down the stairs. One day your eyes are going to glaze over and your windows get dim. And then maybe someone in your family has to make the decision. Just have them live on machines, pull it. Maybe you have to write something out to let your family know what to do when you can't talk anymore. Kind of reminds you of Fido, doesn't it? We're no better off than a beast, he's saying. We're no better off than animals. You look in that little cage in your daughter's room and you see the gerbil running on the wheel and you're going, that's me. I go to work and I punch in and I punch out. I'm the little gerbil on the wheel. I just keep spinning the wheel until I die one day. And all the work that I did, I leave behind to someone else and who knows what they do with it. Which was his point earlier when he said that work itself is meaningless. And then he really outdoes himself in chapter 4 when he says that it's so bad, life is so meaningless here under the sun, on earth. Life is so meaningless, we're better off dead. Chapter 4, 1 and 2. Again, I saw all the oppression, all the oppressions that are, under, that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. You ever hear someone say, oh my goodness, I'm so glad my grandmother wasn't here to see this. This election, oh my goodness, my grandfather would say that I'm so glad he didn't have to see this. Maybe we're half kidding, but he's serious. It'd be better to not be alive than to see the riots and the murders and the killings and the terrorism and death and the loss of loved ones and righteous people suffering and wicked people rejoicing. It's so painful. How do you bear that pain when we're all just going to death like beasts anyway? Then he says in verse 3, but better than the person who doesn't live past when they should live and experience more than they should have experienced Better than both is he who has not yet been born and has not seen the evil deeds that are under, done under the sun. It's not just that some people are better off not living past a certain date. It's that with the pain in the world and the wickedness that we see and the meaninglessness that is rampant and everywhere is better to not have been born. Depressed yet? It's pretty dark. There's no just kidding. <laughs> you, don't, you don't get to a certain chapter and he's like, psych. You know? And then I found out everything I just said was wrong. <laughs> so erase all that. You know, control all, delete that. No, he doesn't get to there. He strips you down of the delusion that joy can be had in this life. Why does he do that? So that he can give you the answer as to where true joy can be found. He doesn't want a syncretism where you can take joy in some of your pursuits and then, and then this answer that he's going to give you is kind of another, uh, just another piece. Another little uh, piece to the puzzle. And when you have all the pieces together, it, it, the sum of all those things is joy. No. He wants to completely take every trophy of joy off your shelf. 
And when you look at that empty, bare shelf and go, there is nothing. Now he's going to give you the answer. He drops it in hints throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. It's not written linearly. He doesn't just talk about work and then he moves on and talks about pleasure and then moves on. I kind of did that for our sake. But he goes in cycles. He talks about the meaninglessness of work and then he goes into pleasure. He goes into other things and he goes back to the meaninglessness of work. You remember that famous part where he talks about there's a time for weeping and there's a time for laughter and there's a time for this and a time for that, right? These are the cycles of life. There's pain, then there's not pain, but then there's pain again. And he writes in cycles like that. So in these cycles, he drops little hints. So what I want us to do is back up to chapter 1. I just want to show you some of those hints as to what the answer is and why this book is in the Bible. What is the answer? Well, the first hint that we get is this phrase that he uses over and over again. Everything under the sun is vanity. Everything under heaven. You might have caught that a couple of times in some of the verses that we've read. He uses that 28 times exactly. In some version or other, 30 different times that he says under the sun. You see verse 3 in chapter 1? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? 30 different times. That's a flag going, clue, hint. Everything under the sun is meaningless. Everything under heaven is vanity. What about heaven itself? What about the one who sits on the throne in heaven? Is he meaningless? He's not meaningless. What about the one who's over the sun and controls it? Is he meaningless? He's not meaningless. This is meaningless. The here, the now, what we see, what's tangible, what's right in front of us, that quick vapor of life, this tiny slice of eternity. Outside of the context of the creator, it's meaningless. But he wants us to remember that it's only meaningless in this limited perspective under the sun. If all we think about is what the sunlight hits around us, and we try to find meaning in those things, your life is completely meaningless. It has to be filled with something that is beyond the sun, that is in heaven, not under it. And so that's our first hint. We see things like verse 113. Verse 13 of chapter 1, it looks like he's blaming God at first. He says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. There's the phrase again, under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Right? It sounds like he's blaming God. Like, it's an unhappy, it's an unhappy thing, all this stuff that God gave us to do. That's what it sounds like. But what he's really saying is an unhappy business that God has given the children of man. In other words, our perspective is not to stop at what is under the sun, but recognize that what is given us to do under the sun is given to us by someone who's over the sun, is given to you by God himself. You don't wake up one day and go, hmm, what are my skills? Huh, what are my natural talents? Let me make one up today. God gave them to you. Somebody emails you and that opportunity finally lands in your lap and you go, yeah. I woke up this morning. I said, you know what, hon? Someone's going to email me today. I'm going to think it into existence. No, God hooked you up. These are things that are given to us by God. And he repeats that over and over again to make sure we understand that the context is that we have been given 
these things. There is a giver. And he's supposed to provide the context for the book of Ecclesiastes. And so we don't find meaning in the things that he gives us. We find meaning in the giver of those things. The book is really about a quest for joy. Here's, here's a, an obvious part where he, he starts pressing that hint in a little bit more obvious way. Chapter 2, verse 24. If you'll join me there. Chapter 2, verse 24. You remember, we looked at this paragraph earlier. We kind of skimmed past it a little bit. But in, chap- in verses 18 to 23, he talks about the vanity of work, the meaninglessness of labor, that it's all toil, it's all for nothing. And then he says in verse 24, chapter 2, verse 24, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. What? He, he, just spent, he just put in all this work to convince us and strip us down that toil is meaningless. And then he said, you know what you should do then? My conclusion is find enjoyment in it. I thought you said you can't find joy in it. There is no meaning in it. Let's look at the rest of the verse. This also I saw is from the hand of God. He's the giver of work. That's why you enjoy it. You enjoy it because God gave you that work. You don't enjoy work because work is your God. You enjoy work because it was given to you by God. And that difference is all the difference. It's a book about a quest for meaning, a search for joy, and it can't be had in those things outside of the context of the fact that those things come from someone who is over heaven and above all things. And so we're to enjoy God, but we can't enjoy God without fearing God. Chapter 3, drop your eyes down to chapter 3, verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. Remember we talked about the crooked things are crooked, man. You can't make the crooked things straight. So where do we find meaning? In the fact that God made it crooked. He doesn't want it straight. And the straight things, he doesn't want crooked. Who makes it crooked? Who makes it straight? See, if it was all random, that'd be pretty meaningless. But he's saying it's not random. He's saying God is the one that gives things in their time. That's the whole point of the song or the poem earlier in chapter 3, from which the birds derived their hit single in 1938. I don't remember when it was. I don't know. Everything has its place. Everything is beautiful in its time because God put it there. He's given the children of man these things to be busy with. You don't find joy in toil, but you find joy in the fact that he gave you that work. So our joy is in him and not in his gifts. Ramps it up again in chapter 5. Flip the page over to chapter 5, verse 7. It comes up again. Chapter 5, verse 7, it goes like this. When dreams increase and words grow many, there's vanity. But God is the one you must fear. You see it there? Now the hint is getting a little obvious. Now he's like underlining it. But God is the one you must fear. You you have to fear God. Otherwise, of course, all of this is meaningless. There's vanity, but you must fear God. That's not vain. And when he says fear... Of course, in the biblical context, 
Fear is not like when you're afraid a robber is going to come in the house and, and shoot you and take your stuff. It's a fear that is uh, full of awe, reverence. Um, I don't want to make fear into something cuddly. It's, it's a heavy awe, not awesome like surfer dude. Awesome, full of awe, like on your face. And you're trembling, not because he thinks he's going to kill you, but you're trembling because you know, you know that he probably should kill you. He's holy and you're not. And so there's this awe, there's this fear that produces worship. It produces obedience. And that is the point. That is what life is supposed to be about. Not chasing all these other things. Those things that we do are supposed to be ways for us to fear him. Conduits for our obedience. Aside from that context, it's all meaningless. And it's all worthless. And so this leads to the enjoyment of other meaning Full pursuits, meaningful only if they're in the context of God. A couple more stops. Chapter 7. He does it again. Chapter 7. Verse 15. And you'll see that the reason why people find it so difficult to read the book of Ecclesiastes is because they read his vanity stuff. And they take it as absolute, oh, everything is vanity. And then when he says there's something that's not vanity, they go, he contradicted himself. No, 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 he's not contradicting it. He's unlocking it. And so you read chapter 7, verse 15. He says, in my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. Remember that? The righteous man, he just perishes. He dies. So why do righteousness? And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. What in the world? Why does... Why does my aunt, who's a God-fearing prayer warrior, why did she die young? And then her neighbor, who's a jerk, who's mean, who's angry, he's racist, he's a bigot. He's like 98 years old and still rides his bike around the neighborhood. What, what's going on there? And then he says, verse 16, be not overly righteous. This is coming from an author of scripture. Don't be overly righteous, please. And do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? But don't go on the other extreme, verse 17. Don't be overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? A lot of those guys do die young. Verse 18. There's how he resolves it. It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. He's saying the God-fearer is not the guy who pursues righteousness. When he says, don't be overly righteous, we know who he's talking about when he says, don't be overly wicked. We know, it's easy to fill in that blank. Who's he talking about when he says, the overly righteous dude? Who's that guy? Well, he's the guy that's always quoting Bible verses all the time. He carries the biggest Bible that, that, that Crossway publishes, you know what I'm saying, with the calfskin, and he's got all underlines, and he's got all his pocket is full of all his different color codes, and this one stands for love, and that one's, you know what I'm saying? He's constantly quoting scripture. He knows everything by memory, and, and he's going to go up to the pastor afterwards and bother him for 20 minutes about some Greek word that he learned during the week, and, and you know, all his kids are, are uh, you know, this guy. Now, all those things, none of those things are bad in and of themselves. It's when you realize, when you really get to know that guy, it's a lot of talk and not a lot of walk. It's the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son. 
Who was the unrighteous guy out of the two brothers? The one that spent all his possessions and dishonored his father and then came home in repentance? Or the guy that stayed home and did everything right? At the end of that parable, he's the one that's outside of the celebration because he is the unrighteous one. If your meaning in life is your pursuit of your own righteousness, you lose. So what's the difference between personal righteousness and an actual relationship with God? Well, one person fears God and knows that he can't bring any of his righteousness to the table. That's the worshiper. The overly righteous person is the one that goes, oh God, I'm good enough to stand before you. And he loses. His life is meaningless because all those verses he memorized and all those Sunday schools he taught don't mean anything because he doesn't fear God. You know what he respects? His own self. He thinks he's hot stuff because he's so righteous. And he's never come to a true place of repentance. So he resolves it in verse 18 by saying, I commend, I commend, well, that's in chapter 8. Last stop before our conclusion. Chapter 8, verse 14. Chapter 8, verse 14, he does it again. He punches you in the face, and then he applies the balm, right? Chapter 8, verse 14, he says, There was a little city with few men in it. Well, that's, that's 9. Chapter 8. There's a vanity that takes place on earth. That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said this is also vanity. So same thing, the problem of evil. The righteous get this when they should get that. The wicked get that when they should get this. So there's how messed up life is. And then verse 15, I commend joy. Yep. I commend that. That is my recommendation. Be joyful. Why? For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. Well, why? I thought you just said that he doesn't have any of that. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Anytime you see the idea of joy pop up, that we should be joyful, you also see the idea that these things are given to you by God. Why are those things together? Because joy and God are inseparable. Detached from God, it doesn't matter what you do in life. It doesn't matter what you accomplish. It doesn't matter how righteous you are. It doesn't matter how wicked you are. It doesn't matter how poor you are. The answer isn't the poverty gospel, right? Well, I'm, I'm going to church in a burlap sack today. I'm putting ashes on. I'm real holy. I mean, the opposite end of the spectrum, you're still doing the same thing. You're finding righteousness in what you do. And you're trying to find meaning in what you can pursue. When meaning can only be found in the one who gives you those pursuits. And then his conclusion. He gets real obvious. Just in case people like me, boneheads that take a long time to read this and we're still not getting it. And it take, you got to read it over and over. He gives us a nice little conclusion in the end that's so different that people think, here's somebody who comes in and this is the just kidding part. Here's somebody that comes in at the end of chapter 12 and goes, forget everything you just read for 11 and a half chapters. Here's what you really need to know. If that were the case, why wouldn't they just delete the 11 and a half chapters and make this a small book, like the Old Testament version of the book of Jude or something? You know, just a little tiny letter that tells you, hey, by the way, meaning, meaning in life, it's God. Why 11 and a half chapters of all the depressing stuff? Because I think he wants to make sure you have the key to unlock all that what he's saying. Look at verse 9, chapter 12, verse 9. 
He says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. Another hint that it's Solomon. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, be aware. Beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is awareness of the flesh. The end of all matter. All has been heard. Right, so here's my point. He's waving the flags, two big flags now. Like, here's the point. I'm landing the plane. Everything that you just heard, what's the point of all of it? Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. I sat with somebody that I'm discipling recently, and we sat down, and we were going through some scripture verses, and I just mentioned something like, you know, our purpose, our very purpose in life is to worship God, to give God glory. And he thought, huh, is it really? That's, that's the only thing I'm not so sure about. What else is it? What else is it? So I took him from scripture verse to scripture verse. The reason why we're here is to give glory to God. The reason why we were created is to give glory to God. God is not a side thing. He's it. God is not something you add to your life. He's part of your portfolio. He's He's everything. This is the whole duty of man. It doesn't matter what you do, how much money you make, how long you live, whether you're in a car accident or not, you get a disease, you don't get a disease, who you live next to. It doesn't matter. All those things don't matter if you don't have this. Your duty, the reason why you draw breath and the reason why you're not an animal, you're not a gerbil, you're not a dog, is because you were created to worship God. You were created for your duty to be obedience to him. This is the whole duty of man, to keep God's commandments, to fear God. Remembering verse 14, that God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. God watches all things. He's a God who watches. He's a God who sees. And even though what we do and what we pursue is in this little tiny slice of time, that little tiny slice of time is the testing ground. He's watching. He's looking. And what you do counts because he's watching. If he weren't watching, what you did or didn't do wouldn't count. This is the dilemma of the humanist, the naturalist, the atheist. If you're just a product of time plus matter plus chance, then what you do doesn't matter. They have no objective basis for morality. They can't say what's good and what's bad. We're just molecules, man. But if we're created, that means we have a purpose. If there's someone over us, above the sun, sitting in heaven, watching, looking, then we're responsible to that one. And he's saying, now you got it. That's it. Your whole duty is your responsibility to this creator God. And one day he'll bring all things into judgment. You know, this book was written, I think, uh, by Solomon. And you remember reading through the book of Judges, they did all these bad things because there was no king, and then they kept going into these cycles of bad things, but there was no king, and they, because there was no king, they did right what was in their own eyes. They just did whatever they felt like doing. There was no king. So you think, okay, the answer is a king. Then you go into the kings, right? And the kings can't solve it. The kings can't bring meaning to this meaningless earth under the sun. But God promised that one in the line of David would be it. Solomon wasn't it. He wrote this book, and he's like, I, I fear God. <laughs> well, 
But one would come in the line of David who would be the judge. We just saw that in Acts 17, 31. That was read for us earlier, that Jesus Christ is the appointed judge to whom we report when all is said and done. And meaning in life can only be find, found in being ready for that report. And you can't be ready for that report outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, outside of knowing him, fearing God, by responding to the gift of his son. And so I hope that you know him. I hope that you don't leave here depressed. The only way you leave here today after something like this and walk away not depressed, if you took it, took it seriously, is knowing Christ. To say, hey God, I can't worship you perfectly. I fail. That's okay. Christ is the perfect worshiper. Know him. Repent of your lack of worship and know him. So no matter how good your job is, no matter how good your marriage is, no matter how matter relationships you have, you find meaning in the giver of those things through Jesus Christ. Let's pray.